My name's Michelle Klieger. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast, The Grower and The Economist. We're living in unprecedented times. Yes, there have been supply chain disruptions before, and there have been pandemics before, but never have they occurred when we farm and we trade and we live on such a global scale. Less than 2% of the U.S. population currently works in agriculture, and most people don't know where their food comes from. Later on in the season, we're going to talk with a farmer's market manager in Colorado who regularly gets questions about why people can't get avocados and mangoes in their food boxes in Colorado. So our understanding of our food system, the logistics and transportation, as well as food workers are very unknown. So as businesses are trying to adapt and manage in this global environment and with this global crisis, Peter and I have come together to have a conversation to help small and medium growers address the problems and challenges that they are facing, as well as identify new unique opportunities to help them grow their businesses and redesign the local food system. Hi, Peter. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Michelle. It's nice to get this project started with you. My name is Peter Conjoyan. I am a horticultural researcher and consultant in the private sector operating out of Massachusetts. I had the pleasure of growing up on a family truck farm here on the East Coast, pursued graduate degrees, then went on to teach at the university level, and eventually returned to a family greenhouse and garden center operation here in Massachusetts. And over the decades have continued my private sector research with affiliations at uh, universities throughout the New England region. And uh, you and I came together about a year ago and have since decided that there's much to talk about, as you say, a conversation to be had, and there's a lot of educating to be offered to this sector that you described, the small and medium-sized uh, greenhouse growers and farmers around the country. So thank you for the invitation, and it's nice to get started. So before I tell you a little bit about myself, I was wondering if you could tell me what a trucking farmer is. Truck farm, Michelle, is a phrase that uh, kind of caught on. Uh, let's reference post-World War II through the 50s and 60s. And the truck farm is how we describe, uh, a, let's say, a small family farm that back in those decades, uh, there weren't as many direct-to-consumer outlets, such as farm stands right on site. So we would harvest our crops and then truck them to a city, nearby city, where a wholesale uh, produce market would be located. So for me being outside of Boston, Michelle, current place in the city in Boston is called the Faneuil Hall Marketplace. And that is a tourist destination, but I have memories as a toddler or, or a grammar school child jumping in the pickup truck with my dad after it was filled with produce, driving into the Faneuil Hall buildings and unloading at a commission agent's stall where he would then sell the produce to area supermarkets. So truck farming is uh, it's just how we got our produce to market. 
Thank you. That's really helpful because over the course of the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about different ways that farmers and growers can reach their customers in this current situation when our supply chains have been disrupted. So before I go any farther, I think it's only appropriate that I introduce myself. My name is Michelle Klieger. I also live outside of Boston. I am an agricultural economist. I have worked for consulting firms in the food and agriculture space, focusing on international trade. I worked for the American Seed Trade Association for several years where I tried to help farmers increase exports of seeds all over the globe. I like to joke, I earned my master's on an airplane. Um, and two years ago, my family moved to Massachusetts where I started a food and agricultural consulting firm. And some of the projects I've been working on in the indoor ag, controlled agriculture and vertical farming space helped me cross paths with Peter. So we feel that our uh, combination of understanding plants and growing and farms and operations combined with agricultural economics and supply chain really will help us bring a lot of important information together to growers around the country as they navigate everything from hoarding customers to lack of employees to sicknesses to just the fear that we're all feeling every day. So our outline is that we are putting together a series it's specifically for small and medium-sized vegetable and horticultural businesses, and we're focusing on production changes, marketing changes, and the long-term impact of the novel coronavirus on our industry. We've also invited several guest speakers to share their spots and give specific advice. Before we dive into some of the impacts on the local food system, Peter, are there any other introductory thoughts that you have? I have one, Michelle, and that is if I put my grower's cap on, most of the uh, growers, the small and medium-sized folks that you and I are describing as the target, the focus of our work, most of them, farmers and greenhouse growers, like growing things. We, we, our day is full of getting out in a greenhouse or in the fields and tending to our crops. And uh, over my career, I've noticed that uh, businessmen and women, we tend not to be. So I think critical to you and me teaming up together is the economic uh, slash marketing slash management expertise that you're going to bring to this conversation. So I think alone, you and I would be able to offer something, but together the total message will be greater than the sum of either of our messages. That's great. I really think that that's the point where we offer the most value. So for today, I had put together a lot of statistics about the size of the local food market and where, you know, how many farmers and ranchers operate in these programs. So just to start, the local food sales, according to the Congressional Research Service, is estimated to be close to $12 billion in 2019. So that's a pretty large number. 
by itself, however, as a portion of our total food system is extremely small. And part of the reason that we're having this discussion is that a lot of this food is sold through farmers markets to farm to school programs, as well as other institutions and food hubs. And as you can imagine, at the point of taping in mid-April, a lot of these are closed. Schools are closed potentially for the rest of the year. Universities are closed. Restaurants are closed. A lot of farmers markets in different regions are either reduced size or closed. Um, and so if we look at the data, the there are going to be huge losses during this period where we're seeing no access to these institutions, yet we all still need to eat. So instead of focusing too much on the numbers, I actually think going back to my question about the truck farming is really helpful because this is a huge disruption, but we've all been through business cycles before. We've all seen the marketplace change. And as Peter alluded to in his introduction, his family used to deliver food every week to Nathaniel Hall to be sold. Um, and at some point you stopped. So I'm wondering about your transition at that point. It sounds like your business has evolved a lot over the years. And I'm just wondering about that mindset as you know when you need to change and how you take that leap in your business and make the changes necessary to continue in the new environment? That, Michelle, is, is an insightful question. Thank you for asking it. And I think the next comments that I'm about to make, I can say with confidence what my family experienced over uh, 50, 60 years now is, is a story that we hear from coast to coast regardless of state, climate. So what you're asking, here's my synopsis of it. Through the 60, 1960s and into the early 1970s, it became clear to my father, my parents, my mom and dad, who both ran the truck farm, that in New England, we were having more and more trouble making enough margin to support the family. So as they were recognizing this through the 60s, it was in 1960 that my dad decided to build his first greenhouse. And that was for ornamental crops like geraniums and petunias that we'd grow through the winter and, and sell retail uh, from the greenhouse uh, in the spring. So as the greenhouse and ornamental part of our family farm grew, we were able to take some pressure off of the truck farm and the outdoor fields and agriculture. Um, and we got that down to a point where through the early 70s, when I was an undergraduate at the University of New Hampshire, they were able to give me the truck farm to run in the summer. And that's how I paid for my undergraduate education, which as in hindsight was such a beautiful opportunity for me. I'd hear about all my academic uh, during the weekend classes. And then in weekends, I would go back home to the farm and, and be, it was like a living laboratory. So as, as the greenhouses grew, it was in the mid 70s that we finally said goodbye to the outdoor fields and farming, put all of our attention into this, the uh, greenhouses and, and built a, created a garden center. Now that flourished for 50 years and it was through 
our recent Great Recession that we experienced the same thing, Michelle, where the profit margin on, on growing flowers in the greenhouse for a small, medium-sized operation was uh, getting squeezed. At this point, it was after decades of battling big box retailing. So after decades of fighting with Home Depot and Lowe's and, and Walmart, I describe it this way, Michelle, we were always able to charge more than those outlets, but they put a ceiling on how high we could go. And at some point we couldn't charge enough to make the margin that we needed. So we closed down the family greenhouse operation in 2011 after 51 years. Um, and, and I describe then my journey as I've gone from flowers to food. But if I go back to my dad's generation, we've actually, as a family farm, gone from food to flowers, back to food again. So it's been full circle. And I think your expertise can help explain and describe to fellow growers who've walked this same path, you're able to offer some insights on, on how this happened, why it happened, and what we might look to do in the future. Yes, and right now I do think it's about finding those opportunities. So my point in asking about your experience is that marketplaces are always evolving. If you're an outdoor farmer, you've had a flood, you've had bad conditions, whether regardless of who you are, I mean, farming is not an easy job. Being a grower is not an easy job. There is price pressers, there are labor constraints, there are so many challenges. And so I do think that there are a lot of challenges for the farming industry right now. But remember, our services are essential and people still need to eat. I think that one of the other points that you mentioned in the economics is that there is an interest in younger generations to um, purchase from local growers. And so whether that is a farm to table restaurant, which are growing in popularity, or one of the over 8,000 farmers markets across the country, there's a demand for these products. And so we've seen more regrowth in that local uh, food sector. And now this is going to force local producers to figure out how to continue to migrate, right? So if you you know, sold most of your produce to one restaurant to manage your costs instead of selling direct to consumer, that might not be an option now. If you have a farm to school program, uh, a lot of the schools are becoming creative in how they make sure that they can still get high quality food or food in general to their students because we all know that having well-fed kids is so important in development of both their brains and bodies, but as well as having good behavior in school. And so I think that the first month of this chaos has really been just shaking that snow globe. And now as we move through uh, the discussion, we are beginning to see that there are farms that are increasing their sales. Um, we are seeing new ways of selling, whether it's adding a bag of fresh lettuce with your restaurant order or direct to consumer options. And I think one of the huge benefits 
of being a smaller producer is that you have the most, you are the most nimble. You have the most flexibility to change, right? If you are a giant barge, it is really hard to turn in the processing. Just this week, we've seen several large animal processing facilities close because of coronavirus and they it was in their employees and they couldn't readjust their operations enough without closing to produce and keep everyone safe. We also have large processing facilities that are designed for institutions and others that are designed for grocery stores and all of that investment is really hard to adjust. But as smaller growers and smaller operations you get to be more nimble. You have the opportunities to take advantage. So if your green market or your farmer's market isn't available, can you set up a farm stand? Can you, you know, work with a regional producer that now is suddenly big enough to sell to some of the large grocery stores? And so these are a lot of the opportunities that we're hoping to bring you information on throughout the course of these discussions. I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you used the word essential services, Michelle. Mm -hmm. And as, as we're living through this crisis, it seems that day by day, things are changing as, as you mentioned. And it was just yesterday that I, I read or heard on the news that the governor of Michigan has decided or named garden centers as non-essential. So that uh, this spring, fellow growers of mine in the state of Michigan won't, at this point, at this, on this day that we're, we're recording, they won't be able to open their garden centers. So my immediate reaction as I was hearing this, fortunately, I, I bit my tongue because a sentence or two further down the report, Michelle, it also said that the big box retailers are not going to be allowed in Michigan to sell flowers and vegetables. So as you and I dig into the, some of the challenges that small operations have, some of the advantages that they have, in the past, the big box that you heard me reference in my story for my family's operation, uh, in the past, we would say, okay, the playing field is slanted toward uh, Walmart and Home Depot and Lowe's. But I actually found it refreshing in yesterday's news report that they then extended and, and went from garden centers to say that the big players would not also be able to sell vegetables and flowers. So I found that to be, from the consumer perspective, maybe that's a little disappointing, but from your and my perspectives as trying to help our small growers, at least the playing field this spring in Michigan is going to be, be level. Yeah, and I think that that's going to be another challenge throughout this whole process is that the rules are changing each day and they are so local because an announcement came out last week in Massachusetts where we both live that garden centers were allowed to stay open and that the big box stores could keep their garden centers open too. So while we try to bring information that is useful just a you know friendly reminder that we are not going to be experts in every location and so you know we are bringing uh, your attention to different things but it will be important to stay up to date on the rules uh, that apply to where you live and your businesses. 
Well, I want to thank you, Peter, for your time today. I am really excited about this project and these conversations. I learned something today, even though we prepared for this talk. I think I learned something every time we talk. So if our listeners learn half as much as I do, then I am confident that this will be a valuable resource in the coming months. So I personally wish everyone good health and a lot of patience. I am going on week four or five with a three-year-old at home. So I am constantly focused on patience and open-mindedness. And that is my lesson of the week. And uh, Michelle, for our listeners' benefits, I have grandchildren at the ages of your little daughter. So you and I are enjoying navigating through this and sharing our stories. And uh, in my backyard research and family home greenhouse, my two local granddaughters requested that granddad grows strawberries. So I now have 50 strawberries potted up in my greenhouse. And I'm sure through the episodes, you and I will update each other on, uh, and I know your little girl planted some seeds last week. So, so let's, let's bring everybody in all generations into our conversation. Yes, that would be great. I will put some links to photos of our garden as we uh, progress. That sounds perfect. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. I hope you learned something and we will be back with more topics on production, marketing, and eventually as things start to settle down, what the new landscape for agriculture and especially local agriculture look like. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.